I'm Jason Sylvia, and this is The Creative Capital Show. A show about creative people and how those creative people turn into entrepreneurs by taking their creativity and turning it into a business and facing all the trials and tribulations along the way. When most people think of recycling, they tend to think of those blue bins that take glass, paper, or plastic. Rarely do they think of recycling as a creative business opportunity. However, this episode's guest, Steve Duque, viewed recycling in a different way, which led him on an entrepreneurial journey that is 10 years strong and counting. Steve is the owner of Duque Skate Art, where broken skateboards are upcycled into products such as pens, keychains, bowls, earrings, and standalone art pieces, with each piece being a one-of-a-kind work of art that is as beautiful as it is functional. In this episode, I sit down with Steve and talk about his artistic influences, the perception of the skateboarding community, how he created his first piece of skateboard art, how he made his first sale, and why he doesn't pursue his art as his sole profession. And it all starts with a broken napkin holder. Enjoy. Steve Duque, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me into your uh, to your lovely home, and we're uh, chilling with your your dog Cosmo. Yeah, it's Cosmo. Yeah, Co- Cosmo's chilling. So if you hear a if you hear a dog in the background, <laughs> that's uh, that's Cosmo trying to make his podcast debut. <laughs> um, but for those out there, uh, Steve, who don't know who you are, don't know what you do, what would be maybe the uh, the elevator pitch, so to speak? Um, you know, just the little the little quip like, "Hey, I'm Steve Duque, and this is and I do dot dot dot." I would I, I always like keeping it simple, so I would say, um, born and raised local Rhode Island artist, and what I do is I upcycle skateboards into functional art. And, you know, even just from my history with this, and anybody who's listening to this knows I'm, I'm getting getting up there in years now, mid-30s, starting to feel like an old man. I got the gray hairs <laughs> on the beard, though, but it's looking good. Um, but, you know, I've I've seen your products and seen you around for a long time, so I'm actually happy to do this interview because I think your, your opinion on things is going to be interesting in the sense of the longevity of yet you've had doing this, um, considering that I remember seeing your stuff, uh, if I'm not mistaken... Um, we're going to go even further back as far as like how this conversation is going to go. But I remember you seeing your stuff as early as I want to say 2011, 2012. And now we're in 2023. So it's like 10 plus years of doing this, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. I started in 2012. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, one of the more interesting parts, but one of the more reasons why I was excited for this episode is that sometimes I talk to businesses that have only been around for a couple of years, whereas you've been doing your thing consistently for about a decade which yeah. not everybody gets to do that in the world of like art and art entrepreneurship um so you know let me just start off with saying congrats to you on just pulling that off because i think that's a milestone to be proud of um just Thank from everybody you. i've interviewed uh but let's go even further further back and um 
you know, because you said, you know, skateboarding, obviously the things you make, the products, which I'm looking at now, napkin holders, pens, bowls, things that just in your house, which look great, by the way. Um, what started first? Because it seems like the art came before the skateboarding. Because I remember I read somewhere that you were like really into mixing colors when you were like around seven or eight years old. Yeah, so I've always been into art uh, since I was a young boy and just even like a kid. I've always been into coloring, um, crayons and paints and stuff. Um, I started in acrylics when I was in middle school. Um, loved art class and I just would paint at home and I loved it. And then that carried over into uh, high school. Um, as far as skateboarding, um, that actually also came early. I started skateboarding on my 13th birthday. And was it your brother or your cousin that inspired you to skateboard? My brother, my uh, my middle older brother. And so what was it about what he was doing with skateboarding um, that you were like, oh, I want to go do that? Was it just more like, hey, my like I have an older brother, I look up to him, I want to do what he does? Or is there something specific about skateboarding that you're like, yes, that? It was, it just looked so fun. It looked so fun. Um, and it wasn't so much about following in his footsteps, but I just, I, there was an attraction to it. I just thought it looked so cool and more, it just looked fun. It just looked fun to ride a board and, and do tricks on it. So, um, I would always kind of like use his board, um, when he was riding. And then your dad at some point when you were like, what, 12 or 13, got you like your first like complete skate deck. Yeah, yep, yep. I got a complete board on my 13th birthday. My dad actually brought me to uh, Emerald Square Mall, and that's that's the day I started officially skateboarding. You know, there's this um, quote from, from all people. I, I never thought I'd hear this person say this. Of all people, Jerry Seinfeld said this, and he said this on Comedians in Cars, uh, comedians in cars Getting Coffee. I, I'm blanking on the uh, which episode it was. but And I don't even know how it came up, but they were talking about skateboarding kids who skateboard and jerry seinfeld of all people made this quote which i thought was pretty i thought it was like pretty awe-inspiring he goes you know when you're in comedy when you're a stand-up comic it's just you and the audience like you can't rely on a team you can't rely on anybody to help you like you better be you better be funny yeah. right so and he was like you know i don't know how the the topic of skateboarding came up but he's like those kids who are on skateboards he's like you know they're banging themselves up they're getting hurt but they're like they're probably learning a lot he's like He's like, whenever I see a kid skateboarding, he's like, that kid's going to be all right because he's getting taught really hard life lessons, whether he's falling down, having to get up, <laughs> getting injured. Like, he's like, they're learning quick. Um, I don't know if that was a joke about kids or if he was being serious about skateboarding, but I think it, it's still, it still resonated with me. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, you know, for whatever the perception is of skateboarding, that is, I think, something that's valid. W would you agree with that? And like in those early years of skateboarding, was there anything that you were learning just from skating or being around people that were skating that maybe had carried over, you know, maybe you didn't realize it then, but carried over later on in life to the things you do now and how it affects like your work and how you, you know, the things you put out? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. At an early age, I learned through skateboarding. I mean, just so, not just my friends. I mean, I have a lot of close friends. I always say this, that I've met through skateboarding. But uh, aside from that, I, the things you learn in skateboarding, any alternative sport, are they're just so independent. It's, it's like you said, you're like, you're not on a team. You do it all yourself. And one of the things that I learned is just how to express yourself without, without caring what anybody thinks. And also the community that it brings. You know, you can be any in any part of the world 
and you will find another skater that you can relate to, that you can become a friend and and learn from, honestly. Like, it's not just about the tricks. It's about the camaraderie, um, the fun, the the skateboarding, the terrain around you, all around the world. I mean, it's just, it's endless. In my opinion, it's, it's endless on the possibilities uh, of what you can do with skateboarding. Do you think that the public, and then, you know, when you were saying about any extreme sport in skating, because uh, I've watched a couple of documentaries about skateboarding, and one of the things that they had mentioned was how, um, and bringing it back to Providence, everybody, how, like, the <laughs> X Games being in Providence kind of, I don't want to see revitalized, but, like, the, the hey, 80s heyday of, like, the big air tricks and that kind of thing went a little bit downward, and then these guys were pro skaters making all this money, they weren't making money anymore, and then the X Games kind of, like, brought it, I guess more back into the mainstream as far as like being able to like be a pro skater and like eat off of that. Yeah. Essentially. And like the X games kind of like brought that, brought that back into the fold where it had its thing and then it went down and then the X games brought it back. And now, and now it's like at this like level where it's both, it's both everywhere and not everywhere. Right. I think is, is, right. a, is a way to put it. Um, what do you think when you were, cause you were skating at a younger age. So what was the perception of skating like from outside of the skate community then? Do you think it's changed now? And, you know, what do you think people get right as far as like an outsider's perception of it? But also, what do you think people get wrong about it? Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, so going back to the, you know, the early 90s, like even the 2000s, I would say the perception of skateboarders, you know, like you said, from outside of a skateboarders world, um, I think was it was mixed, you know, in some part it was negative just because of, you know, um, what was put out in the media, also in like movies and stuff. I was gonna say, um, the movie Kids probably didn't help. Yeah, <laughs> like Kids also, um, uh, Gleaming the Cube, that's a classic one. Um, I did, I, I've never watched that, but I've seen like clips from it and I just kind of like, I feel like, I, I feel like your dog, like, I just cut my head to the side, I'm like, what am I watching? <laughs> Oh man, yeah, no, um, definitely Christian Slater. You got that's a you got to put that on the list. Such a classic one, but um, but yeah, no, it's absolutely morphed into something so huge of what it is today. I mean, going back from where it was in the '90s when you were a skateboarder, you were looked at you were looked at as like okay, like you know, not necessarily like lazy, but but kind of like a skate rat, like you know, not really doing anything. Like oh, like you're still skateboarding. Kind of, kind of the same, uh, the same mentality that you would get in a lot of alternative sports, like let's say like biking and whatnot. But what it's what it morphed into is, like you said, it resurrected with the X Games. Like what that brought to the scene, it just magnified it, intensified skateboarding so much more. From then until now, we have street league. Um, we, you know, there's contests that have happened every single year. For example, like the Florida Tampa Am. And the pro contest that happens every single year. Now there's the street league. Now it's in the Olympics. So it's, there's also like video games on this stuff. Like, like, yeah. like, 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 look how long Tony Hawk's pro skater and yes. like how like that affected an entire generation of kids. That's a whole nother, that's a whole, yeah, genre. That's a whole other thing. And, and, <laughs> and just sneakers and clothing yeah. and fashion and how like, like if it wasn't for skateboarding, we wouldn't have a Supreme if you, if you think about it. Yep. hundred percent. Hundred percent. Like the 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 skateboard culture has grown, and there's so many different um, what's the word avenues or just dif different companies that have come out that have magnified skateboarding. Like you said, through clothing, through skate shops like Supreme, 
Um, even skateboarding's having their own companies. Like I, there's a skateboarder named Moose who has his own wax, you know, so stuff like that. Um, but it, and then now when, when people, I feel like now when people look at skateboarding, it's something like, I don't know if Where? your dog agrees or not. <laughs> so he's like, no. <laughs> I would like, say I, like I, I don't agree at all. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> but now skateboarders, I feel as though like there's so much movement and positivity behind skateboarders and like what they're bringing to the scene, like things for the community, skate parks, doing donating skateboards to kids that are in need, things like that. That's more in highlight because of social media. I feel like skateboarders have a better name. They have like they have more respect. So it's it's not like so. Would you say I guess the short version of that, the headline version was before it was kind of seen as this. Well, it was an underground thing. The outsider looking at like looking into it would be like, oh, this is a bunch of like skate rat slackers. And now it's this like, oh, like if my kids like. Or if a parent had a kid, for it's like my kid's this slacker skateboard. Now it's like my kid might go to the Olympics. My right. kid might, my kid might, you know, be in a video game. My kid might like yes. make his own company. Whereas before, was that maybe not thought of if you were a parent or an outsider looking at kids skateboarding? Exactly. It wasn't. No, it wasn't thought of. It's like it's, it's one of those things where you now and now and day you have, like you said, so many parents and kids and and people out there that that have a connection to skateboarding that they never had before. And they had that thought process with like, you know what? My nephew skateboards. So like, Hey, it's not that bad. Or you're right. Oh my, my daughter can be in the Olympics. Something, you know, just these thoughts yeah. are happening more now. What, you know, so you're talking about how, you know, skateboarding have, you know, giving you a community and how it's a community, no matter where you go, because you'll identify with somebody that skateboards. Um, so it can be a community that's as big or as small as you want it to be. And then also teaching you, things about self-expression you know when it comes to your art what did skateboarding just being skateboarding in general being in involved in that and having that in your life um and again maybe it's something you realize now because now you're doing what you're doing was there any specific lessons in business because you you know at the end of the day you are making money off of off of the art and the stuff that you're making was there anything in was there any business lessons that skateboarding may have taught you that you didn't expect I would say it's hard because when I think of like business and like skateboarding, I'm I'm thinking of like, you know, like a like a like an am or a pro and how, how they would be approached with you know from a company or whatnot. But I wouldn't say I necessarily like learned anything that way I could connect through skateboarding into like my business. Um the only the only thing I, I can think of at this point that there is a connection uh in the question and and let me know if I'm not answering it correctly, but it's it's the graphics that are on the decks. Where now in day, like like now that I, looking back in hindsight, I'm like, wow, like there are so many amazing graphics, and still that come out today. That okay, sure they're valuable and they're great on the board. You ride it, you hang it up, you love it. But now, like with what I do, where it's like, okay, somebody did all that. Now they wrote it. Now the board's broken. Now it's heading to the trash. Well, I can kind of step in and be like, you know what? There's still a lot of value in this graphic that someone thinks is trash. And I can now turn it into like a, a coaster. And now you can kind of. So the, the business lesson of repurposing or, or maybe seeing an inventory where other people weren't seeing an inventory, which I think yes. that is, that is a, a huge business lesson because other people may just see like, I don't know, like 
years ago, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go like, like other people years ago would see, you know, the idea of going to a Target or Marshalls or a TJ Maxx buying, like buying stuff and then trying to sell it later as like odd or how would you make money? Now that that's like a whole flip that people can do. Yep. Like literally they'll go and then they'll flip it on Amazon or they'll go and buy like stuff from like even like Salvation Army or Goodwill and then scan it on eBay and then flip it. So I think to maybe summarize that you saw, you know, this thing is like, oh, these boards are just going to go into the trash. You're like, no, no, that, that's that's inventory for me. I can I can flip that and make money. And the way you were flipping it, so to speak, is you weren't just directly reselling. You were taking it and transforming it into another product, into your own product. Right. But it was an inventory that, no, that, you know, probably nobody else was thinking like, oh, I can I can take these discarded things and make money off of them. Right. So like the the this thought process for me would be something that kind of happened later on like that. When I first started Duke Skate Art, the only thing that I was thinking at that point was like, hey, I'm working on a project. I'm going to start something new. Like, let me use some different material. Um, at first, even like the first couple of months where I was making like keychains and stuff for like coworkers and like my friends, um, it was like, I, I, I did have that thought process like, oh, this is really cool. Like I have a lot of inventory. Like I can make a bunch of keychains. But now, you know, 10 years into it, a hundred percent that that there's more thought into like wow like i can this there's you know these two boards alone i can make so much from this graphic and and people will love it because they can they'll, it'll resonate with them and so it seems like there was like at some point and i want i want to hold on to this guy i want to i want to go to this a little bit later but it seems like at some point I think there's like a mindset change sometimes whereas you know there are people who like um i'll just more think of it more in a general sense where there's the one mindset of like, hey, I love buying Jordans. I'll buy a pair of Jordans because I'm into them and I want to wear them, dot, dot, dot. But then there are other people who go, huh, I love Jordans. Other people really love Jordans. Maybe I should buy some stock in Nike or buy some stock in Jordan brand or like yeah. maybe there's a business opportunity here. So I think like there's like a mindset change there, I think, also that you're touching upon, which is interesting and I want to get into in a little bit. One question I do have... Um, you know, you're saying your dad bought you your first complete skate deck. Um, did your, you know, and I always think this is interesting. Did your parents, when they got you that first skate deck, did they have that same outsider's view of skateboarding back then where it was just kind of like, okay, it's something he likes to do, but like, it's just going to be something he likes to do. Were they like supportive or was it just like, hey, we're supportive, but we don't, we don't think you're going to make a career off this or something like that. Right. Yeah. So my... My parents are a very old school tradition. And so at the time, I mean, I was the youngest of four children. So they didn't really think about or even I didn't think of like, you know, thought would come across of them thinking I would be ever come like professional or, or something like that. But they just kind of saw it as like, okay, like this is a new toy. Like he's going to ride it and like, you know, kind of like my bike or something. Um, but, you know, as I continued to skate for like years and continue to skate years and years into my teenage years, you know, they did realize it was more serious, but but never to the point where like I'm going to make a career out of it, type of thing. Where did they see the? Um, because you said you were interested in art and colors and things at a very young age. Did they see the art like that as well, or were they like, oh no, he might be an artist someday, or was it the same thing? Like, oh, it's something he likes to do, but we're not really sure if he's going to make a career. Like, were there any field they were trying to push you into or anything like that, or no? No, not at all. No, I mean, my parents have always been a hundred percent supportive of you know anything that I want to do. 
Um, they've also at the same time have been very honest with kind of like steering me, you know, to the, you know, things that I, that they know I like and that I'm into. But as far as like uh, any like field or like art, no, like when I was even like with the skateboard art or like, um, you know, when I was, when I started to do it, they also kind of like, like, wow, this is really cool. Like, this is, this is awesome that you're doing this, but it kind of didn't go from there. Like it, it, it wasn't anything where it was like, wow, like this can blow up or something like that. So it's more like, Hey, we're not going to tell you not to do something. We're not going to like dissuade or be like, no, you must go do this career. Right, it makes right. money. But at the same time, it was kind of like more in the middle, like, all right, we'll let you figure it out. But also like, they're, they're not going to be like, Oh, like, like, this is amazing. Like, he's like, this is what he was meant to do. Like, he's totally going to be blowing up and fine off of this. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So, um, but uh, at the same time, all throughout it, very, very supportive and, and still to this day, um, super supportive. <laughs> so we're going to take a little bit of a turn here because I find this interesting. How did you, you know, you're, you're skateboarding, you're into art, um, you're into photography. Did the photography start actually yeah. before I ask this question real quick, did the photography start while you were skateboarding? Or you were, were you just trying to get shots? Cause I remember you were talking about, um, in a video interview, about how you have the iPhone now and the iPhone is just, which makes sense. Um, yeah. But was the photography more like, uh, when you got into it, more about an art thing or more about just like capturing moments in skateboarding? Or was it a little bit of both? So at first it was just about capturing moments. Like I, I think it was like 2004, 2005. It was like the, the DSLR um, like craze where everybody was buying cameras. And that's when I first bought mine. And when I first bought it, it was just to shoot photos, just to kind of take photos of the city and like kind of get into like photography in that sense. Uh, but it wasn't until about a year after that, where after taking photos and shooting, I was like, all right, I can I start doing gigs and like, you know, birthday parties, weddings and whatnot. Um, and, 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 but I like that didn't last for too long. Uh, so I, I got into the photography to kind of just do it for art. Then it became kind of like, oh, I'm going to do this for money. And I did that, but then it, stopped being fun when I was doing it for like money. If that makes sense. So you were like, so it was like, I am really interested in this, but then it's like, Oh, I'm getting, I can get gigs and, and like pay bills with that. And then you're like, this is not fun. If I'm purely, if I'm purely just paying bills with it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it took the fun out of it. Like, like just like doing like stuff like weddings and like, like quinceaneras and stuff like that. Um, Cause but, it's not, it's not your expression now. It now right. it's just like, okay, I have to shoot this a certain way because the bride wants it done that way. Exactly. There's a lot of pressure in that. Um, and so big props to like all the, all the, the wedding photographers, especially that, you know, that get these shots. But for me, like, I like taking shots where like I'm in the city or like, for example, like my puddle shots. Um, I love like that photography is what speaks to me. Um, can you explain just the puddle shots just for those who don't? Yeah. That is? <laughs> so, so, um, I like to take photos of puddles and so like still puddles um, you know, in the city, especially, but just pretty much anywhere where as long as I can see like the reflection perfectly. And, um, I just have this technique that I take it where it's kind of, it looks like a mirror almost. And, and that's that I love to do that. So you're, you're skateboarding, you have the art, you have the photography. What led you into banking? So <laughs> like, I, like, I, it's just one of those things where it's just like, I got, you know, I got no, uh, nothing against anyone doing any type of job. I mean, I've, I've worked all sorts of jobs, but like you're, you're just like banking. Oh, okay. Like, like how did, was that something like you just 
picked it up or you're like, I just need to pay for things. So let me just work at a bank. That's pretty much it. So, uh, the, so working in banking was essentially like me just getting that good job with, with the, with, you know, with the bennies, you know, 40 hours. Um, and, and that's what it was. So it, it allowed me to continue doing my art and being into the things that I want to be into, but still at the same time, um, you know, have a good paying job that's like steady, like, now, I do have a question about that as when you got into banking, was the um, the products coming f- out of uh, Duque Skate Art already happening or had that not happened yet? So it had not happened yet. Um, okay. It, yeah. Um, so you're doing the banking and were you looking at that as like, hey, I'm doing this to pay bills and benefits, but I'm st- like still trying to figure out like what i want to do or were you just like no like i can do this and then do the art and like i'm i'm good i've, I've figured out like a pattern or like a lifestyle that works so when i when i was doing the banking i was i was doing photography and then while i was working in banking i created duke skate art um and so but when i was working that job even before and after duke skate art I was looking to grow within my company. Like I was still looking to to stay in that, you know, corporate world. Not to knock anybody in the corporate world, by the way, but um, but I just it wasn't for me. Like it wasn't it wasn't I I can relate. <laughs> um I can <laughs> definitely relate. Uh I do have a question about working in the corporate world because there are things that I'm realizing now that I, I think sometimes people try to make things very black and white or very binary where it's yes and no black and white and there's not gray. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes people look at the corporate world. It's like corporate bad yeah. opposite of that good. Um, and I have, I've had that mindset, but then now I'm looking back on it. And while there was a number of negatives, which is why I had to leave the corporate world. There's also like things that it taught me that I'm kind of like, Oh, these were like skill sets I didn't have before that I learned from that. Yeah. Was there anything, um, from working that corporate job or like those corporate lifestyle, was there anything that you took from that? Either you noticed you took from that, whether it's like, you know, was there any lessons or skill sets that you learned that either translated into your artwork or translated into the business that you run now? Was there anything you took from that at all? Definitely. I can't deny that. I mean, I, I worked in the banking industry, I would say close to 10 years. Um, and I worked in customer service mainly. And so I dealt with customers on an everyday basis. So you had to deal with people. Uh, yep. People all day. And, uh, I I, I still love it. It's awesome. What I definitely took away from it though, is being able to interact and have good conversations and solid communication with people like that hundred percent took away. So it's, it almost kind of gave you the, the practice to, you know, cause the, and we're going to, don't worry everybody. We're going to answer the business part. We're leading up to it. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but, that you know taught you just how to interact with people because you're going to need that skill set later on yeah to 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 make the you know make the sales and make the transactions so it it taught you i guess how to sell uh, yeah it it taught me to be comfortable just holding a conversation um you know on a uh, well spoken conversation that you're actually listening like there's actually content in the conversation um Learning to listen to people is a big thing, is a big thing. Cause you know, you have these conversations with people and like, I'm sure you've had them too, where like, you can tell like the other, the next person's like waiting to say something else, Yep. you know? So they're not really like listening. So I would say 
I learned how to really listen and also just kind of communicate, you know, what we're talking about or like, you know, express myself in, in the right words. And that definitely carried over into the business side of it because now when I do my festivals or whether I'm doing stuff online or w whatever it may be, I know how to talk to people the right way and kind of and, and understand what they're saying or what they want without it being weird and awkward, you know? And you know, speaking of other jobs that you've worked outside of skateboarding, when did, because um, I think this is a, you know, a key thing to highlight before we get into your own business, um, Narragansett Bay Commission, when did you get involved with them and what, what, what do you do for them as far as, uh, 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 you know, your job, so to speak? Sure. So um, I got into NBC in 2019. Um, just to back up a little bit, retract. I prior to that, I was working in the banking, and I I left that. That was my last corporate job, and I I wasn't working for about six months. I was just doing Duke skate art, which was awesome. But at the end, I ultimately I was like, I need you know I need to get a job, and so this was obviously prior to COVID, but. I got into uh, NBC in 2019, uh, working in their customer service, and then ultimately I, I moved to another department. But um, but I love it. I'm you know I still work there now full time, and it's honestly like not sounds very cliche, but it's literally the best job I've like ever had. Can you explain just um what the Narragansett Bay Commission does, just for anybody listening that doesn't know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, essentially, it's the sewer company. It's uh, it's Providence mainly sewer company. So what we do is we facilitate all the sewer. We ensure people um, have clean water. Um, there's a lot of initiatives that are done uh, to ensure that the bay is clean through Narragansett Bay. But um, ultimately, just for like your everyday homeowner, you get a bill, um, depending on the city that you live in, you get a bill in the mail and that's for your sewer, your dirty water. And so I ultimately work for the company that manages that uh, for the city of Providence. So now we're going to get into you know, to, to the, to the heart of this, which is, you know, Duke a skate art. Um, one thing, you know, actually two questions that first come to mind, the first one being, um, and I think this is a good way to start. What made you in the world of skateboarding, right? Cause like there, you know, and we're talking about, we were just, we were just talking about avenues. Like, again, you could go to the Olympics. If you skateboard, if you're, if you're good enough, you can go pro, you can start a skate deck company. You can do graphics for skateboards. You can be in a video game. You could, you know, so many different avenues. Um, what made you choose or, you know, what made you choose this avenue of like, Hey, I'm going to do art, but specifically on smaller items rather than Hey, I'm going to be like, cause you were doing photography. So it's like, you know, you can shoot for a skateboard magazine, you know, things like that. What made you go, Hey, I'm going to do this instead of trying to be a, or maybe you were trying to be a pro skater. I don't know. Rather than I'm going to be a pro skater or rather than I'm going to be, you know, a skate photographer. Like what made you choose this Avenue to be in the world or, you know, in the orbit of the world that is skateboarding over others. So with, with skateboarding, like it's it's funny because you know there's so many like you said there's so many like different worlds you can go into. For me, like I just I've just been a skateboarder at heart since I was 13, and me getting into the world of like repurposing art, it it just came to me. Um, I I did begin with photography, but 
I got out of photography. I never once was in photography and was like, oh, like I could be a skate, like I could shoot photos of like skaters. And I granted, I did have friends that were into that and that did that. And I thought it was awesome. But I just like to skateboard instead of like shoot skaters. Um, and then when I got out of photography because it just wasn't fun anymore. I mean, like I said, I still shoot on my iPhone daily. But as far as like getting out of that photography world and it just kind of, like what made me want to go into repurposing was just, it just came to me. I loved working with my hands. Like ever since I, t I took woodworking when I was in middle school and high school and I fell in love with it. I, I just, I love creating with my hands. I love seeing things built. I love like brainstorming different things and customizing things and, and kind of making things my own. And so that part of it, it was so strong for me that it just happened Honestly, I, I I would I didn't go into it like I'm gonna be like I, I'm gonna choose to do this. You know what I mean? Like it was just kind of like I was doing art, and then I one day decided like, oh, I'm gonna use my deck instead of just using this slab of wood, and then like the light bulb went off. So so, so it was it was uh, it was kind of like a singular moment thing, but it wasn't this like huge like this crazy thing happened or like a skate deck broke broke in front of me and i went aha you were just like oh this <laughs> right. make this makes sense like you were just like oh there's a skate deck there that's not being used like see what happens if i use that instead right yeah so it's funny i'll tell you i'll tell you the the inception story and then okay I, yeah because that, that's why i'm I, i'm really interested in it because like, sometimes inceptions are like a single moment it's like holy right. shit but then sometimes it's just like it's a series of things that it just evolves into it you know definitely definitely so for me so i i'll and i this is really corny but it was on september 28th 2012 wow you even got the date yeah yeah that's that's the date that i made my first duke skate art creation um so essentially, I was working. I had a napkin holder in my in my studio at S220. I was going to ask if the pen or the napkin holder came first. So it's the napkin holder. It's the glad, napkin glad you glad you answered that. Which I'm looking. All right. So wait, that's yeah. that's, that's that's the napkin holder. That's the first thing I ever made in skate art. Yeah, that's the napkin holder. <laughs> that I just think it's funny because I was like, oh, I wonder. Like I was literally wondering if that is the one or if that's just another one you had and like the first one's like sold or long lost. But that's that's cool. You kept it. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it's. I, I couldn't sell it. No way. No. I um, and I still use it. It's funny, but but yeah, that's what started it. So that was a broken napkin holder, and ultimately, what happened one day was, or that day, I should say, uh, I was just one day I I was like, I got to fix this napkin holder. And I just was like, oh, I, could, I had this broken board. I could, I could use these pieces. And that was not like the aha moment. Like that was just kind of me. Like, I'm just, I'm just creating stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm just making, but I had this one piece of wood that it was too thick to use for the napkin holder. And I, I didn't want to throw it away. So I just kind of like held it and I was just like looking at it and then I kind of like held it like a pen. And I was like, oh, like maybe I can like make a pen out of this somehow. Um, and then that night, like I walked down the hall, I helped, I, I knocked on my um, buddy's door, Richard from uh, Ape and Bird. And he helped me out and he, and he just was like, helped me drill this hole. I went back to my studio. I ended up making a pen an hour later. And then that was the, when I held the pen and I wrote with it, that was like, holy shit, like this is awesome so it was both it was the napkin holder and the pen because right. i remember the pen was because i was trying to when i was when i was doing my research for this i was like i wonder if the napkin holder or the pen came first so they 
the napkin holder came first, but then the utility of like you made this pen after you fixed the napkin holder, right? And you were able to sit down and write something where you're like, oh, holy shit, I can like make stuff, right? Exactly. So ultimately, so so it was like the art came from a necessity because I was I was I was fixing the napkin holder, you know, using the skateboard. At that moment, I was like, I'm just fixing this. This is cool. It'll look awesome. But then when I had the the uh, um, accessory, like the additional piece of wood, I didn't just want to throw it away. When I was brainstorming, that's kind of when like that got the gears rolling, and I was like, "Oh wow!" Like I'm I'm moving on. I'm like doing something else, but it's still with skateboards. And that was like, "Whoa!" So was that the reason, or maybe one of the reasons why you focus on these smaller items that have not all of them, but they have a utility versus doing something like sculptures, uh, specifically like. Um, I've read that one of your inspirations was this Japanese artist by the name of Hiroshi. Yes. Um, is that the reason? Now, I'm not saying, you know, you don't take inspiration from him, but like, why not go the sculpture route and like go like the fine art world route, but rather you're making these items that are of more utility. And can you actually talk a little bit about Hiroshi as well? Yeah, definitely. So I, why I, I just, pref- I didn't go the sculpture route because for me, I am more into like creating functional art where people can actually use it. Um, I still do decorative art and I do I still do art pieces and and wall art. However, for me, it was just the the functionality of using repurposed material in everyday use. Gotcha. Um, you know that that's really. So what about Hiroshi then? Because he's a a sculpting artist, correct? Yes. Yes, so, he is. So what about? that artist and if you could maybe explain his work a little bit that and how it inspired you yeah so hiroshi is in my opinion uh the master of skateboard art um he is a japanese artist um he's a sculptor he lives in tokyo and he creates like 3d sculptures as you were saying out of skateboards and he does his work is absolutely incredible i mean i could talk about his work for hours but um but just the, the way that he uses the skateboards to create these like faces and these dolls and high, fire hydrants and just all these different things. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I, it's, it's mind blowing for me. And so I have a lot of inspiration that comes from Hiroshi's work, even though it's not, even though I don't create um, sculptures. So does it give you more of inspiration from like a design and color aesthetic, but then your own way was like, Hey, I want utility on top of all of that. Yeah, yeah. So it was. It's both. It's. I mean, because because with the functionality and like the utility, like you were saying, you get both. You get both the best of both worlds. It's like a really beautiful, colorful art. But now it's like an ice cream scoop. Gotcha. So, so on top of that, as far as inspiration goes, there is a particular, and I have to go through my notes here because I'm going to mess up the name unless I uh, unless I get it down correctly. There was also another point of inspiration. There was a specific documentary called Second Nature. Yes. That was about architecture. Um, that, seemed, that seemed to have impacted you a bit. So if you could explain what that documentary was about and how that impacted you and influenced what you do now. Awesome, Jason. I'm so glad that you brought that up because... I try. I try with the uh, research, man. No, for sure. You are on point. On point. No, um, uh, not war style. But I... <laughs> I, that all right that's a huge compliment thank you <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to be providence nardwar <laughs> no you're getting there definitely so i will say this with um that documentary by the way second nature is um 
the the director and creator i believe his uh, name is yan sari and that is essentially where it first began even before the napkin holder and I'm, this is why i'm glad you brought this up so one day i was watching that documentary and at the beginning of that documentary you can see that he's working on a wall piece that almost looks like a subway system but the pieces that are on the wall are actual skateboards. They're thin strips of skateboards that are kind of connected together. And when I saw it, I was like, that is awesome. Like he's doing like a big map out of like pieces of skateboard. And so when I saw that, that is what sparked my idea to use skateboards on the napkin holder that was broken sitting on my kitchen table for two months. Holy shit. Yeah. Jeebus. Yeah, so that's where it started from. So that documentary, once I saw that, I was like, oh, like that's a wall art, but he's using skateboard. That's really cool. And I was like, wait, I have a, I have a napkin holder I have to fix. I have a skateboard in my living room. I can do this now. Like I don't have to, I don't have to wait. Like, like here's a thing. Here's a, here's something I can do. Right, right, right. So like I saw his wall piece and like I, I was like, I was, I thought it was awesome. I thought it was really cool. I had never seen people use, you know, skateboards as, as a wall art. And so that kind of immediately I was like napkin holder. So you, you, you know, you got your inspiration, you've got the idea, you've got the, you know, you have an, an inventory in the sense of um, materials to work with in the, in, you know, skate decks. When did the idea of I can, cause I think there's like people who make things and they just want to make them and give them to their friends. And, they, and that's fine. Like that's more than fine. Actually, that's great that, you know, people can do that, but then, I think there is a difference or there's a, you know, a leap, so to speak, that people take when like, oh, I'm actually going to sell this for money and make a profit and then essentially run a business. How did that part come about? Because, um, you know, now, all right, so now we're getting into it, people. Um, okay. So how did that part come about? Was that also a singular moment kind of thing like the pen or was that more of an evolutionary thing where it's like, oh, this is. This is something I can do to make money and I can like sell these things. Right. So I would definitely say it was an uh, evolutionary thing. Um, when I made that pen, I went to work the next day and I remember showing my coworker who sat next to me this, the pen and he like, he saw it and he was like, that's a pen. And then he wrote with it and he's like, this is fucking awesome. I want one. And and like when he said that, I was like, "Oh, that's cool." I still wasn't thinking like, "Oh, like I can make a bunch and sell them." I was just kind of like, "Oh, that's awesome." And then you know, someone else. The next day, I when I was working on that, I had a couple scraps, and I like had made a keychain. Um, and so that was like my second thing I made, kind of like as like a to have. But as far as it evolving into like a business and like making it into like a profit that came later on um a couple of months later i would say in, in december of 2012 there's a tagline from apple that says think different i would say in the case of steve duque that tagline should be changed to see different what I think is really interesting about Steve is that he saw the careers usually available within the skateboarding community, such as creating clothing or 
making equipment, or getting into skateboard photography, or becoming a pro skater. And he noticed that they all weren't necessarily for him. In addition, when others saw a broken board, he saw raw materials that could be transformed into beautiful and functional items. While others would see a broken napkin holder, he saw an item to be fixed. And in the process of fixing that item, he saw an opportunity, which has led him to turn trash into literal cash. So take a lesson out of Steve's playbook. Change how you see the world. Because when you see the world differently, you may also see new creative and entrepreneurial possibilities. be a shop on Wickedon Street right at the top kind of like near where like the shop is and it was it So there was, was a shop near where the shop coffee I I understood what you were saying because I because <laughs> I live in Providence I know everybody but anybody listening is they wait the shop near the shop so <laughs> just to clarify a little bit people there is a coffee shop at the top of Wickedon called The Shop and it currently exists now. Yeah. So what you're saying if I just want to make sure I got this right Yeah. There was a sh- there was a shop next to the plate, the coffee place currently called The Shop. That's it. Yeah, okay. You got it. Just to clarify yeah. so nobody's confused while they're listening. Please continue. <laughs> I just, yeah. I was like, I think I need to clarify that a no, little bit. No, definitely need clarification on that. So, so that was a shop that um, was essentially they sold local handmade art. And I just had stumbled upon it. I think I was going to just like grab a slice of pizza and I was walking and I, I saw the shop and I was like, oh, that's really cool. I walked in and I, I like saw, you know, bunch of stuff, candles and whatnot. I really liked it, bought some stuff. And I went back home and then I'm like working on my stuff. And like, I kind of thought, I'm like, I got some keychains here. And then that's when I kind of had like, like that moment or where like it was evolving. Cause by that time it had been a couple of months into it. I had a bunch of keychains I had like sold and like had some pens and stuff. And so I, I was thinking, I was like, wait, I went to that shop today and there's a bunch of like handmade art. I'm like, what if I go back there with some stuff and maybe I can get it sold in the shop? And like, that's what got me excited. And that was kind of the moment where I was like, I'm going to go this route. So it wasn't even necessarily, and you said this was back in 2012. So in 2012, I think it was, you know, technology moves so fast, but I think it was a different time. Like you could open up an online shop back then, but I don't, if it's not, it's not as easy as it is now. Now, like, right. like now you could take credit card payments on your phone, whereas before you couldn't do that. So was, so the idea of like getting excited of selling, but it was through another store. So like the idea of like you doing it directly, did, did that not even come into play yet? It didn't know because I mean, I was just so, I was so small and I, I, I was attracted to the idea of a shop already having kind of already having customer customers coming in to look at art. And so for me, it was a great place to start. It was like, okay, you know what? I can still sell this, you know, out of my trunk, but it would be wonderful if I actually had a store that I could direct people to. Was that the first sale you made? It it was it was the first like shop it was the first shop that was like yeah we'll sell your stuff that must have been like when you're like oh i could do that and then they're like yeah and you're like oh shit really yeah you know what <laughs> i went so i went back to that shop i think like a day or two later 
and he had recognized me. And I'm like, hey, like I came in, I was like, I, you know, I, I upcycle skateboards. He was so happy and excited and like he just showed me so much love and was like i've never seen this is like absolutely like this stuff would fly so that 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 shop though is that not around anymore did they move or yeah it did unfortunately they had like a flood in the shop and stuff and so oh, it closed shit. so yeah. did you already have the name of duke skate art um then or did that name come later i did i just I, I, that was the i i still love the name but now it's kind of duke if you just kind of look at it, but yeah, that's, I had the name by then. I just was like, you know, that's it's skateboard art. I don't want to say Duque skateboard art. Cause it's just too long. So gotcha. Like, so there's Duque and then yeah. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, you were mentioning you already had the keychains and you did the pen. Is there specific? Cause like I, I've looked up like, you know, your items and everything. There's about like 38, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, 38, like smaller items. Yes. I would say. Okay. Yeah. What, you know, what made you determine I'm going to do these more smaller utilitarian items? Was it more like that? It wasn't just because they were easy to make or was it you enjoyed making those more? Was it because you could have a lot of them? You could have them on you at any given time. And it was almost like better than a business card where it's like, here, here's this pen right. that I made. If you dig it, I can tell you more. Like, was what is the reasoning behind making these smaller items and then i'm guessing you added items over the years you didn't you probably didn't come out the gate with 38 items so what was the reasoning behind wanting to do smaller items but then also how do you consider hey i want it like this is the next item i want to add to the inventory that's on hand like is there a process for that nice so the reason the main reason i would say that i stick like stick to the smaller items is really just because I like challenging myself with so many different things. Um, I, I, and also it's the kits, the kits that are available for, you know, when I'm using my lathe to turn different pieces. Um, I, there's just so many different options. And so I, I pick up a lot of them and I like learning how to make different things too. As far as like the bigger items, for example, like the bowls or like the side tables and like things like that, I do enjoy making those. But those obviously take m- more material. It's more time, more, way more time consuming. And also it has a lot to do with the the equipment that I have, like the machinery that I'm using, where I am able to make things that are bigger, although it just takes a little bit longer. Um, and so that's kind of... How do you go into the pricing because I, th- I think this is like one thing that I think a lot of entrepreneurs in general, let alone creative entrepreneurs, especially when you're pricing art, like yeah. it's, it's like, cause I know there's a lot of artists out there who like my art is like my children and things like that. It's like, how do you put a price on it? So mm. how, how do you determine, you know, the price of the pen or the bowl or the napkin? Like what goes into that? Do you look at like similar pieces and you go, okay, I have to like, the market's determining it. Do you just go, this is what I feel I think is right. Have you ever had to adjust your price? Maybe you were charging too much or too little. Um, I'm guessing like the, t- like, do you calculate how much time it takes to make a single item? And then do you calculate it that way? Yeah. Does none of that come into play? Cause I think that's a, I think pricing is a thing that people I don't think talk about enough. And I think it's a headache for a lot of people. It's like, well, how do I calculate a price that one I'm going to not only make the money back, but make a profit, but two, also I'm not spending too much time making it. And then it's like, um, you know, spending 20 hours to make a thing. Whereas if I had a regular job, I'd be making way more money. Totally. Yeah. So there's, a, there's so many different aspects that go into pricing 
And let me just start off right off the bat by saying, I struggled with pricing for many, many years. And, and, and I, I do so now, but not so much as I did before. Uh, and the reason is, I mean, when you're an artist, I don't know, you just, you know, you, a lot of times you do know what your worth is, but a lot of times you question what your worth is. And so for me, I have, I have some items. It, like I said, like it really depends on the item. So let's just say, for example, a keychain or a magnet. With those items, I know how long it takes to make them. And their prices have gone up in the last like 10 years since I started, but not dramatically. And pretty much those prices have been the same for the last like five years. Um, but when it comes to pieces that are bigger, that take, that are more time consuming, for example, like my bowls, like to make a bowl, that's at least five to seven hours minimum. And so when I sell a bowl at a hundred dollars, or I should say a bowl or a dish, you know, um, that's, that's the minimum. Like they start at a hundred and that's firm. Like that's a firm price where for me, I'm at a point now where that's what it's worth for me because I know how much time and energy I've put into it. And that's also how much they've sold plenty of other times in the past. People have, you know, uh, um, bought them at that price. So for me, something like that, um, is, is priced firmly and, you know, it kind of goes from there. Um, my prices definitely have gone up because of the machine. Now the, the, the machinery, like the amount of like difficulty that I can put in the piece, for example, um, I'll just use earrings as an example. So if I have earrings that have over 40 different pieces of, of skateboard in that earring, then granted, those are going to be more than the earrings that are only one single piece of skateboard. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, where I'm at as far as the pricing goes. So I've noticed that, you know, now you have the multiple channels of you being able to sell things, right? You sell things in other shops, you sell stuff through your own site. I've seen you at different markets. Um, when, you know, so this is a two-part question. The first one being, you know, you sold to that first shop and you're like, you know, it's like, okay, great. Did that give you momentum to then go to other shops? Because now you kind of almost have this like social proof. It's like, well, I'm already at this shop. So now I can sell in that shop. And when did these other channels come about? So I, so I noticed that you didn't have, you know, your own store, you know, online store for whenever at first, first it was just selling to this other shop. Did it go from like shops, then events, and then your own online store? Like, can you talk about how like you just started adapting these different channels of, of ways to sell your stuff? Yeah, sure. So the after that first store um, agreed to sell Duke Skate Art, Duke Skate Art, I immediately after that, and I had already had this idea, but my friend kind of kind of pushed me and was like, you should go to Civil Skate Shop and ask Guido if he can sell your stuff because I'm sure he'd love it. And at that point, like I had been so new, I was right. kind of hesitant. Um, but, you know, I... I had in the back of my head, I was like, you know what? I do want to do that. So I finally went and, and yeah, with open arms, he was just like, yeah, absolutely. And civil skate shop, I just want to say for the record has been 100% like just, they've been a, a pillar for Duke skate art. Did and, you work for them at any time or no? No, I never worked for them, but I go there often. They're like a family and I love all the dudes there. But, um, but yeah, they've, they've, so that was my second shop. And from there, 
I was like, you know what? I'm going to set up an Etsy shop because I knew about Etsy. So I kind of set up an Etsy shop and that was like my online shop, which continues to be my online shop now. Um, and then later on, I would say like in the, the summer or spring of 2013 is when I actually did my first like art market. So you've got, you know, then the second part of this question now, so you've got the art market, you've got shops that aren't skate shops selling your stuff. You have actual skate shops selling your stuff. And then you have the Etsy online store. Um, how do you balance between these different channels? Like, is it just, you know, do you find different times that you have to take priority like on one versus the other or, you know, cause like if there's another shop wanting to buy your stuff, right. Then you have to figure out things like wholesale and how much, you know, you got to sell it to them so then they can sell it and make a profit. And then you have to make sure that that price is not, or is m matching or close to the price you're selling it because if you're selling it way cheaper than them, then what they'll, the people will just be like, well, then screw it. I'm not going to go to that store because I'll just wait until I, or I'll go on his Etsy shop or I'll just go to the event and I'll get it from him for way cheaper. So like, there's probably some math you have to do there. And that that's like going to take some time uh, versus the online shop where it's just like, all right, so an order comes in, you probably have to ship it yourself versus going to civil where it's more like they're in the community. So it's probably maybe, maybe I'm assuming a little bit more lax as far as like it's a handshake or whatever. Um, does it ever get tough having to balance all those things or were there things you didn't expect? Like, Hey, I'm selling to the shop. That's not a skate shop. They have to do, I saw you nodding your head when I was like, you have to figure out wholesale pricing. Yeah. Does that ever like get, you know, um, do you have like this almost like spinning plates or it's like, all right, like I was focused on this. Now the online shops not doing, all right, I gotta go back to that and yes, keep everything definitely. moving. So I, this is why I said earlier that I struggled with pricing for many, many years because this is part of it. So when you're juggling between selling at an art market and then I'm selling online on Etsy, but then also I'm selling up the street at the skate shop, there is a point where you kind of have to look at your pricing and be like, okay, like I need to adjust this accordingly because if I'm selling wholesale, which by the way, I've done both. I do wholesale and I also do consignment. Depending. I was just about to ask if you've done consignment as well. Okay. I have. Yeah. So I, I, I sell, I still currently sell at different shops and it's both depending on what they offer. Um, and so, but when it comes to like kind of juggling and deciding what I'm going to do first, first and foremost, I always ensure that my shops are fully stocked. I always kind of check in with them and let them know that, you know, I have stock or let me know if you need restock, things like that. And then when I do, sh when I do my shows, I, my, myself have to pretty much keep track of the inventory and I know when I can do a show or when I need to continue working and stuff like that. Um, but the, the jug, but back to like the juggling part of the pricing that has been difficult because there are a lot of times where you go to a shop and they're like, it's 50%. So if you're going to give us whatever thing at five bucks, we're going to turn around and sell it for 10. So, cause they have to make a profit. Exactly. Right. So, and I understand that a hundred percent. However, for me as an artist, that limits me on what I'm going to offer to that shop because there are certain items that I'm not willing to negotiate the price on. Um, for example, like the bowl and dishes. Like I had said earlier, like, so the bowl, my bowls and the dishes, they go for, you know, a hundred bucks. But if a shop's going to sell that for 200, there's not going to be a lot of people that are going to spend the 200 on something that I would sell for a hundred um, on my Etsy, for example. Gotcha. Um, so when it comes to that, where it's like, I, I, and, I and I'm upfront with the shop, I tell them, you know, upfront, like I sell it for a hundred but I cannot give it to you for $50. You know what I mean? So 
it, it kind of goes from there. Now, are you do now from back then to now? You still are you still just like a, a one man operation, or have, have you like have friends helped out? Have you ever bought on an employee, or has it always just been solely? Excuse me, solely you. Hundred percent me. Does that did it ever cross your mind at any point? I need to at least get an, an intern, an assistant, or like I I need to like hire somebody. Yes, a hundred. Like like right now, like today, more than ever is is when I feel that I have felt that for like the last couple of years, but definitely, you know, with now COVID happening and there being so much more like remote stuff, and personally for me, where my you know where my business is kind of going. I definitely am at the point now where I would love to find the right person that I can trust to help with my business. Do you think that there's a specific reason or reasons that you haven't found that person up until this point? Or maybe there, there wasn't a need up until this point? I think it's, it, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, ultimately, I think it's just like the, it's the time, the time that it takes to find the right person um, and also it's how sporadic I am when I work in the shop. You know, sometimes I'll work two or three days in the shop after work. Other times I might not go to the shop for two or three days in a row. Um, and so that like availability plays a big part of it. Um, and then also it's just really like just my comfort zone. You know, we all have our comfort zones. We're like, oh, like, do I want to step out and stuff? So it's that also obviously plays a role in it for me. I would think, yeah. So I noticed... As you're answering that question, I think this is a good segue into my next question. So as you were answering that previous question, you said the word business and you said your business. Was there a moment, just like you had the aha moment with the napkin and the pen, was there an aha moment or was it more of an evolution where it went from, hey, this is something where like, cool, I sold in this shop, but now you're like, oh, this is a business now. Like this is like an actual business that has inventory and shops to answer to and money to be made and sales channels to worry about was there like a moment like oh crap like in a good way not a bad way but oh crap they're like this is a business now or was it just more like was it one singular moment or was it just an evolutionary thing where you just like realized one day like oh uh-huh like this did turn into a like a business that is making generating cash flow yeah yeah i would say uh definitely in, in the early years you know 2013 2014 when i was doing the farmers markets and the festivals and the holiday markets and things like that. Like that's when it really, you know, sunk in and I was really just preparing myself to grow it as a business. And, and, and even now, I mean, and I've always had the, the you know, the laid back, uh, I guess approach to it, but now I'm a lot more serious, a lot more organized, um, and intentional with the business. Was it also back then when you when you were saying you were starting to do more markets? Did you um? I guess the best way I can describe this question is like: Is that when you did the paperwork for your business? And what I mean by that is like setting up the taxes and like the you know whether I'm not sure if it's an LLC or sole proprietorship, but that kind of stuff. Or did that kind of stuff happen later? Because I know some people like right out the gate they're like, nope, I want to get all this stuff straightened out now, so I don't have to worry about it. And some people are like let me sell some things first. Let me see if this is viable. Then it's like, oh shit. Yeah. Now, now I got to get my taxes right now. I got to get my accounting right now. I got to do all this. Like, so I'm just curious as to like, um, if you did that all first out the gate or, in, or earlier, or did that come later? So that for me came much, much later. Um, as far as like 
whether I chose to be a sole proprietor because it's just me, just me alone, a hundred percent of the business. And so that, that came much, much later on. I, and even like, you know, five, six years into it is when, you know, I decided to take that only because it's just a more organized official approach for my business. It got to the point where I, I needed to do this. It was the right time. Do you ever find like doing, I guess, um, nobody can see what I'm doing, but I'm doing air quotes, the more businessy aspects of the business when it comes to like figuring out pricing, um, you know, getting the paperwork and all that kind of straightened out. I'm assuming, you know, keeping tabs on the stores, figuring out inventory, where to allocate your time. Does that ever, has that ever concerned you or did it ever get in the way of like you actually making the stuff? Because I think sometimes, you know, I think people don't realize whether they're an entrepreneur or not, running a business or not, that like, you know, you start out doing some stuff and you make some money off of it. But then, especially if you're doing it all yourself, it's like, oh, you got to take care of all this other stuff too right. and have some kind of a personal life. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but you have to take care of all these business things and it takes time away from you actually doing the stuff that makes you money or the stuff that you actually want to do. Has that ever been a conflict or has there ever been a balancing act? It's absolutely a balancing act, even still to this day. And, and this is kind of a main reason why I would also love somebody to help with that aspect of it, because it's not just, you know, in the wood shop. It's, it's like you said, it's like making sure that the shops are stocked, um, finding out which markets or which applications are open, submitting the applications, photos, fees, things like that. So it's never stopped or hindered me from getting work done. But it's definitely a stressor, um, you know, when like I get an email of like a market um, and that's like I get an email this week for a market that's like in July, August. And I'm like, I don't I would love to do it. But, you know, um, I'm you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be around or something like that with vacation or things like that. So it is a little tricky in that aspect. But um, but the the having somebody to help with that would be tremendous because then I can focus more on the art part of it. Um, you know, it's definitely a balancing act for me. Definitely. If somebody came in and was like, Hey, I'll do all Cause you know, there are partnerships that do exist like this where it's like somebody just handles all the creative stuff. And then the other person or other people handle all the businessy stuff. Um, if somebody were to come in and be like, Hey, I really like what you, I am not creative in any other way, but I can handle businessy stuff. And but they're like, I also want a piece of the business. Would you be willing to do that or no? I wouldn't give them a piece, a piece of the business. Um, I obviously would pay for a service like that. I think that that's awesome. But I wouldn't do the piece of the business part. No, not yet. Um, so speaking of balance, you know, you, um, you're still working for Narragansett Bay Commission. Um, and you do this. And you're doing all your events and all the things that are involved with, uh, with, with Duque. And also new leaders council. I don't know if you're still on that. I want to talk about that in a little bit. Um, just those things and having a personal life. And I know we're in your house right now. Right. Yeah. And you know, I'm not gonna make any assumptions, but look at the pictures on the wall. I'm assuming you're married. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have a marriage, you have a house to take it. Like you have all these things. How do you figure out that balancing act? Cause I think that's the other thing. Sometimes, um, I don't think people like, you know, like, how should I put this? The business entrepreneur was not this quote, again, doing air quotes, a sexy thing where it now is like, 
there are kids who now want to be entrepreneurs, whereas before they wanted to be like, I want to be a basketball star. Now it's like, oh, I want to be a, um, maybe not like young kids, but there are people who are like, I want to be a bit Jeff Bezos. Whereas before it would be like, I want to be this basketball star. I want to be a celebrity. Now, like these entrepreneurs are celebrities. Uh, but I think what people don't see sometimes is like, it may take a toll on your personal life. It, you know, it may cause, it may, for some, it causes a divorce. So for some, they get so involved in the business that they don't, they, they burn out and then they retire and then like they actually start living. Um, so with all that being said, you know, how do you keep the balancing act of like the, the, the corporate-esque, I'll say, just in ter- not, not saying Narragans Big Commission is corporate, but like the corporate-esque in terms of this is nine to five job with benefits and I'm doing the things that I'm doing and a personal life and, and, and like, how do you just keep all of that moving? Yeah. So it's, it's an everyday struggle. I mean, it's, it's all about, I mean, I always, I always say this to my wife, it's all about priorities. And a lot of times it's very easy for us to, you know, get in that autopilot and kind of just go with the motions. But it's also really important to just kind of stop and realize, you know, what you want and to make the time for the things that are important to you. Um, like you said, so I have my, you know, I have my family, I have my wife, I have my job, I have my business. And I also have 10 other things besides that. But some, you know, some days are better than others. Sometimes we're really good at balancing and, and making and checking in on those people that we care about or those things that that need our attention. But, you know, it's it's definitely a struggle that I still have. It's it's um you know, it's something that I think will only get harder as we get older, you know, and, and my business grows, but you know, you got to remind yourself that you have, everybody has 24 hours. And so, you know, it just depends on what you do with your time that, that really, you know, shapes your life and your happiness. Can you talk about New Leaders Council and what that was, because I thought that was really interesting when doing the research for this episode and how you got involved with that and what that was all about. Yes. Yeah, so so that was in 2017, 18. And um, it, so uh, I had gotten involved through my wife. So my we have mutual friends that were involved um, with the program. Essentially, what what New Leaders Council is, is it's a, uh, a six-month uh, program and um essentially a professional development, if you will. Um, but they deal with a lot of different things that they teach. Um, you know, the, the leaders, anything from like public speaking to fundraising to community awareness. And did you seek them out or did they like for the opportunity or did they come to you? So I actually applied. So you have to apply to be in it and and they selected me. Gotcha. Um, And I should know the number, but I want to say there's 17, 17 um members or um yeah leaders that they select every year and um and i was one of them and it's funny because when i went into it like i had i had previously lived in portland oregon for one year and then when i moved back is when i got into new um new leaders council and for me it was like it was um it was very intimidating to apply because i was like not your typical applicant you know i was a skateboarder you know, uh, don't have a college degree, you know, things like that, that were kind of like, you know, stopping me, but, um, I was, I was blessed to be accepted. What, so can you talk about just like what they, what they tell you and what the program was? Yeah. So it's what they, they have. So every, you meet 
one weekend every month and it's Saturday and Sunday and you meet at different locations and they have different speakers that come in that pretty much talk to you about different skill sets um, that they teach. Um, one, like one of the ones that I was really into was like the community awareness and where they had each of us come up with a different, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not necessarily like a project, but kind of like a, like a capstone. Okay. And so it would just, what, like taking the skills that they've taught us and how we would apply that to the community and, and like just seeing the different things that people came up with was awesome. Um, another one was like, uh, fundraising, which I've always been into like supporting them, but never knew how to like organize it just to like learn different things like that. It was really awesome. Um, they taught us about, oh man, I should know more. Um, a little bit of fine, a little bit of financial world. Um, the, the public speaking was a huge one. That one, you know, cause it, it's weird sometimes and you get really nervous, but, um, but that was another one that they did great on just kind of getting that out of people, I should say. Yeah. So I have a, you know, question about perception. Um, cause you were mentioning like, Hey, I applied for this thing and I wasn't the typical, you know, yeah. business person, dot, dot, dot. Um, and this is going to be a, a two-parter. The first part being, does it ever surprise you or does it ever kind of like give you a wow moment? Um, Cause I'm really curious about this where, you know, you're doing these markets and you're doing these things and you're selling to stuff outside of like a skate shop. So I feel like if you, you know, you being a skate, you know, somebody who skateboards, if you sell in a skate shop, it's a natural evolution. It's still the community that you're involved in and you're a part of. Does it ever, like, in a good way, kind of weird you out? Where it's like, oh, people outside of skateboarding, like, are positively, like, viewing this stuff and buying this stuff. And, like, does that ever give you kind of one of those moments? Like, huh, like, people outside this community that may not understand my community, but they understand this and they like this. And do you, do you think that, like, what is that perception like for you? Like, how do you, how do you think people, just from your interactions, view the brand that is uh, Duque? So it's, it's mixed reactions, I've noticed. Um, just like with anything, like, you know, you're always going to have the people that are supportive and you're going to have the people that are like, oh, that, that's cute. But um, I've gotten both. And for me, I thrive off people who are not skateboarders or who aren't into that world that are into it. Um, I, I love when I, you know, have somebody at my table who is, you know, picking up a pen who's like a pen collector or who is, for example, let's say they're a, a seamstress and they pick up a seam ripper and it's something that they use, but they have no relation or have nothing to do with skateboarding, but they're still attracted to it. Like they still see the beauty in it. And that is what I love. Um, I, I see that often, but I also see <laughs> um people who come up and and be like oh yeah like they'll like you know pick up a keychain or something They're like oh that's really cool it's just like i don't like i don't skateboard like i don't really have i don't know anybody who skateboards and like i get that but at the same time i'm coming from a place where it's like but do you have keys yeah yeah it's like <laughs> well you got keys right like <laughs> yeah and you know on the flip side of that how 
because because we were talking about this before, it wasn't the route of, hey, I'm going to be a skateboard photographer for a skateboard mag, or I'm going to be a pro skater, or I'm going to like run a skate shop, or I'm going to run a skateboarding brand. How do you think the skateboard community perceives you and the brand that is Duque? From from what I've received, I, I feel like it's nothing but love um, for the most part. I'm, you know, I'm sure that there's probably, you know, everybody has haters and stuff, but no, I, I've had open arms from the skateboard community. Um, so many of them have obviously donated skateboards uh, to my art. They, they buy it. Um, you know, they, they uh, show up to the festivals, they show up to my shows when I do gallery shows. So it's definitely been something that's, that's been accepted. And I think that people think it's really cool. Um, I, to my knowledge, I believe I'm the first person to do the skateboard art out of Rhode Island. Um, that doesn't go without mentioning, uh, George Roca, who is the owner of Iris skateboards, who is from Rhode Island, but is based out of San Francisco now. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure if he started here, but as far as like now, like residing, like, you know, that's kind of my thought. Do you, um, whether they're part of the skateboarding community or not, is there anything that you wish the general public knew that maybe they don't understand when it comes to your business or what goes on behind the scenes, maybe? That they may not understand about how I run the business or... Either the business or the brand, or is there, is there any misconceptions, whether, you know, and I'm, now, I'm not, now I'm not talking about like outside of skateboarding versus in skateboarding, but I'm like just anybody looking at your brand and your business. So do you think there are any misconceptions or have you ever run into any misconceptions that you wish people maybe understood a little bit better? Not really. The only thing I can think of is like one of the questions that I get often is like, do I paint the boards? Like the actual art that I'm making? Oh, because um, of all the colors involved yes, and everything, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I get that question and I, that's definitely a, a misconception as far as like when you're looking at the art itself. Um, but as far as a business as a whole, um, maybe people don't know still at this point that it's just me. Like I don't have any employees. I don't have a factory or anything like that. Um, your one man operation. One man. Yeah. So I think actually this is a perfect time to ask it. Cause I just trying to figure out when, when to ask this question, can you walk through the actual process just from beginning to end? Cause I, cause this is the kind of stuff that for me, I'm interested in. I think anybody listening to this will be interested in, interested in as well because you have this um what i am assuming is no short shortage of broken skateboards however and like so actually can you walk through the entire thing like how do you get the broken skateboards um how do you like you know how do you break them down um because you're talking about colors and people think that you're you're painting them and you're not so how does that get involved how do you choose how to like break them down how do you choose how to put them together and then how do you turn them into an item can you just walk through from like Hey, I found this broken skateboard. I got this broken skateboard. Like, how do you source that all the way to final product? If you could just walk through it. Yeah, definitely. So it's overall, it's, I mean, there's a lot of steps, but I would say it's about a 10 step process, if you will, um, beginning with getting the skateboard. So the skateboards that I'm using are my personal skateboards that I've rode and broken. I have skateboards that are donated from friends, neighbors, um, cousins, strangers, the community, um, anywhere that I can get a skateboard is where it's coming from. And so, um, I, I will search for them or, or for example, I have the skate shop civil. Yep. They donate a lot of skateboards that other skaters are donating and leaving behind. So, uh, that's where I'm acquiring the boards and getting them. And 
to use to to get it from that point to like let's say um you know an ice cream scoop or whatnot there's like i said about 10 steps where it's like you get the board you then have to remove the grip tape which is the top kind of sandpaper like that's on the board once that's removed the board has to be sanded so you have to sand down the graphic so that there's no graphic on the actual board so at that point it's a raw skateboard it's just a piece of wood and for those who don't know a skateboard is made from seven veneers of maple wood so what they use is they have seven different veneers and sometimes they're colored again this is where the color comes in um they press those seven veneers into the shape of a board and that's how a skateboard's made and and so once i have sanded down the board i then cut the board so i want to cut it down so let's say if i want to do like uh, a pair of earrings i'll cut it down to a very small piece depending on what i'm making once i have that piece I will then shape it. I'll sand it down. I have a belt sander that I use. I also do a lot of hand sanding. Um, and at that point, once it's sanded down, I'll then, I hand write duke on every single piece that I make. Um, even down to the earrings. Everything's handmade. And so once it's signed, I'll then uh, varnish it. I'll glaze it, depending on the item. At that point, once it's glazed, um, it's ready to go. But there's more. If I'm making something like a bowl, a bowl is is a lot more steps because now I'm gluing multiple pieces together. So at that's where you get the, get the color variations because you're stacking things exactly. on top of each other, right? Okay. Right, right. Yeah. So when you stack the skateboard, so let's say you have a couple of pieces of skateboard that you've cut. So when you stack them on top of each other, you're going to see the veneers, which is the inside of the skateboard, has colors sometimes, most of the time. And when you stack them, that's where all the different colors come from. And if I'm making a bowl, I then have to glue those pieces together and then wait. So that's another three steps because once it's glued, you have a chunk, you have to cut it again and shape it. Now, just a real quick, not to interrupt the top of the process, but when it comes to the colors, because you were saying how like when you were a kid, you were putting colors together. Do you consciously, when you're seeing like, you know, the different colors of like stacking pieces, what do you like consciously rearrange them or do they just come out a certain way and you're like however it comes out it comes out i love to rearrange colors okay so you end yes. up rearranging okay absolutely yeah so i love using like bright colors with other bright colors um sometimes i'll do a sequence but most of the time is random um each of my pieces for example like my earrings or my keychains i never make the same piece twice that was, that was, that was gonna be my next question yes um that's that's part of the process so when i make when i make for example a keychain i don't do them in I will do them in batches, but I won't make them the same exact keychain. If that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so when you so when it comes to the bowl and you glue everything to, together, then you do the veneer. Is that it, or is that the end as well, or is there more when there, it comes to those those kind of pieces on the bowl or anything that's made on the lathe, which would you know, which include the pen, for example. When I'm making those types of things, after I've glued the pieces that I need to make the item, I then have to attach it to my lathe. Um, once it's attached to the lathe, I then use chisels to shape it out. So that could be an additional hour to shape it. Can you, you know, and if you want to list all 38, go for it. But can you, because I, I think people don't realize the sheer amount of products. Can you go through the actual, like, maybe... I don't know if like there's maybe products you did before and you don't do them now, but just like yeah. all the different things you've made. Cause I think that's going to be pretty eye opening as well. Oh, definitely. So at this point, I, 
honestly, I probably make I've over 50 different things at this point, but um, like the main popular things that I've made since day one are like pens, keychains, magnets, coasters, earrings, earrings, definitely earrings. Key, uh, um, I said the key racks. I used to do back scratchers. That was one of the things I did a lot of. Um, I've done, I've done, um, looks like you do light switch coverings, light switch coverings. Do those. Um, I do shelves. I've done seam rippers, ice cream scoops, end table. I think you said I did end table. Um, I've done chopsticks. Um, I've also have done the pizza cutter. Oh, okay. Have you ever done, um, just because it's something be something I'm interested in. Like, have you ever looked at done, or maybe even thought about doing um, things like, uh, I don't know, like shot glasses for whether it's alcohol or coffee, or like the little like kind of bowl looking shot glasses, like I've seen more for like sake and sometimes tequila or like carafes or anything like that. Uh, no, I've never done anything like that with like it's like liquid. Um, closest thing I've done to that would be like the dishes. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. The dishes and stuff, but um, still like an expansive breadth of products for sure. Definitely. Yeah. A lot, a lot of different things, um, that I still, even today, like I'll look at something, for example, like the other day I was looking at a platter. It was just a, a really nice platter, ceramic platter, but the handle was wood. And I was like, I can make that. Does, you know, do you like what the expansive breadth of products and the amount of time in the, like, into the process are there? Do you track anything? When I, when I what I mean by that is, do you like actually track the sales of each product, and do you look at it and go like, ah, oh, like keychains aren't moving this month, but bowls are. So like, let's focus on bowls, or is that not even come into play? It doesn't really come into play. Like, and this is where like my laid back uh, approach comes into my business. So with something like the keychains, for example, like if they're not really moving, I'm at the point where like I'll still make them because I know they will eventually. Um, so. But there are there are certain items that I will usually only make if they're requested. Gotcha. And how do you determine whether or not to like start making a product? Because there's actually, but there's there's like the saying of like just because you can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should do something. So is there like any like specific process where you're like, oh yeah, like for example, I was mentioning like carafes and things like that, where you're like. Do you see something and you're like, I can make that, but then you go, but the amount of time is not, it's not going to like be worth the amount I'm going to have to sell it for. Or do you just go, I can make that, give it a shot. And then you've like figure out viability after like, what is the process of like you taking on a new item or adding a new item to the inventory? Right. So there's a couple of different um, thoughts that go through my head when I think of a new product to sell or a new item to make. So for me, it's if I've ever made it before, um, if it's a chat, like if I obviously I like a challenge. So I like making something that I've never made before. I like uh, accessorizing something like I was mentioning, like the platter, but I don't always use that approach because like, for example, I get this question a lot. People will ask me, do I make rings? Skateboard rings are probably one of like the number one or two top popular recycled items or products out there. And Yes, I used to I used to make rings, but I don't now. And that's one of the things where like for me, the reason I don't make them is because so many other people make them. So even though I can So the marketplace is just crowded. It's flooded. It's like yeah. So so for me, like a skateboard ring, it's cool. I think it's cool. Yeah, I can make a ton of them, but I don't want to because for me it's like 
everybody and their mom's making skateboard rings. And you're, and you're just like, how am I going to stand out? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, you know, let me focus on something that no one is making. You know, speaking of standing out, and you know, we're we're getting to the end here, and I um I wanted to ask this question just because I think it's coming up more and more now and just in society. Um, I was reading a Forbes article of how with the recent layoffs and just in case anybody's listening to this and it's like years later. So just at this current time, you know, uh, end of January, 2023, uh, you know, it's been in the news, like Google just did a round of mass layoffs of, um, you know, same with other tech companies, which tech was one of those things. And I came from that world. Tech was one of those things where it's like, if you're in there, you're going to make money now. Like a lot of these, you know, and it wasn't just new people. It was like senior engineers who had been with the company for 10 years were just getting laid off via email, like, bye-bye. So now there's this level of uncertainty and there's a lot of people now, um, you know, they were, they were citing in this Forbes article when talking about that, how like the gig economy has risen and even people with full-time jobs are now taking on these side gigs just so that way they don't have to worry so much about the stability. And now it went from like freedom and flexibility to now job stability, right? Things have happened. The reason why I bring all that up is it seems sometimes when I meet people, there's this almost like all or nothing mentality where it's like, nope, you are either corporate full and that's it. Or you are going to be this entrepreneur, creative person, and that's it. But the idea of doing both at the same time, I want to say it wasn't acceptable, but it was just almost kind of like scoffed at a little bit. Whereas I think now, you know, with everything that's going on in the world and COVID and everything, the idea of doing both at the same time and not it not necessarily like, oh, I'm going to do it both at the same time only because I want to get to this other side. It's like, no, you can just do both at the same time. And like, that's an acceptable lifestyle. And like, maybe that works instead of this all or nothing mentality. And I've noticed you have that. And I've also noticed, you know, you're in the world of skateboarding, but it's not like directly as like a pro skateboard photographer. You know, what do you think are the benefits of that, of like shaping this lifestyle where like, you know, instead of this and or mentality it's like why not both and do you think that there's advantages to it disadvantages to it do you think that that's going to be more of a common thing you know moving forward with the way the world is now um what are your thoughts on that because i because i think you're one of the people that does like that that is doing the why not both yeah and it seems like you have a pretty you know good lifestyle that you're comfortable with so just what are your thoughts on that because i think before it was like and or it was like nope like you just bust your ass, you can then leave and then do the other thing. And then that's, that's all you do. And it's like, well, why can't you do both of the things? Right. Yeah. So I think it comes down to the individual for me because of how I did the lifestyle that I like to live and how I really honor and value time spent with family. I feel as though for me, the way that I'm doing it now with the full-time gig and my business is perfect because even though it's a lot to juggle, I'm, I am happy with the things that I have in my life. Like for me, I'm, I'm more than happy with juggling these two things in order to live the life that I want to live, uh, essentially. Um, I know there's a lot of people that have that like, okay, no, you got to do this or you got to go you, you know, full speed ahead. Yeah, they, no, there can't be a plan B. Yeah, like, yeah. right, right. And, and then, but like, I get that. That's focused. And like, you get that, like, you get that, um, gazelle intensity i guess it's called but but for me i i feel as though like i wouldn't be happy in that like i i like spending time on other things that that aren't necessarily like career driven you know stuff that is good for my 
body, my soul, like just time. Things like that are important for me to be able to continue doing Duke skate art and 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 growing. Um, I think that, like you were saying, like in this day and age, there's a lot more people who are like, why not? Why can't I do this? I feel like this this is working for me. And if I do get to a point in my life where, you know, this is too much or like I'm not into this anymore, then yeah, I'll make a shift. But I feel as though like the way that I'm doing it, I'm I it's working so well for me and. I, all the other parts of my life are, I feel, perfect the way they should be. So I think this is a good way to wrap it up. And the last question I have, it's a two-parter. First part being, what plans, aspirations do you have for Duque moving forward as a brand? Whether it's, you know, immediate plans or aspirations or like maybe where you'd like to see in five or 10 years, if you're even thinking about that. So what plans and aspirations do you have for Duque moving forward? And then the second part of the question is what advice from everything you've done up until this point and also that longevity, which I, again, I think it's something that I don't think is when it comes to you is not highlighted enough just from the longevity, longevity of how long you've been doing this. What have you learned that you would give advice as far as to, you know, entrepreneurs, business people, creative skaters, et cetera. Yeah. So as far as where I see Duke as skate art in the next five to 10 years, I see my business growing with shops, like local shops all around the world. I would love to have it in shops that are accessible to people who aren't in my state or are not in New England. Um, obviously hiring somebody, having the help that I need in my wood shop, so that I'm able to produce more and make bigger things. That's definitely in the plans and I hope to see that in the near future. Um, but really just continuing to grow and challenge myself with the projects that I'm doing. Um, collaborations is another one. I haven't done many of them, but I would be interested in doing um, some collaborations, you know, going forward. And yeah, just 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 moving forward. That's that, That's my advice. I mean... To your second part of the question, there's so in in this day and age, like there's so many ways that people can become entrepreneurs or or or, or approach something that they love in a different way and and make a living off of it. Right. My advice is just always always challenge yourself and always push yourself to work. You know, there's so many of us that have the nine to five that have the full-time job and we get home and we're tired and we have a lot of different things that are going on in our lives. But if you don't make the time to do the thing that you love, the passion that you have, then you're going to get stuck. So whether, whether you're growing your business or whether you're just starting it out or whether you've been in it for a while, you know that in order for you to grow and continue, you just have to keep going. You have to keep challenging yourself. You have to keep putting yourself out there, meeting people. But for me, it's just producing. Like in these last 10 years, what I've done consistently, whether it's shows or anything else, the one thing I've done is just continue to to make art. You know, even when I don't have shows, I always say this to people when I talk about Duke Skate Art. If nobody saw my art, I would still do it. Like if no one could ever see it, I would still make over 50 different things because I love it. So yeah, that's what I would say. Just push yourself. 
I think that is a perfect way to to end this episode. So, Steve Duque, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for just talking about your brand, your your life in skating, your life outside of skating, and the advice you've given. Um, it's definitely been just from seeing the evolution of where it started and where it is now. This has definitely been eye opening for me, and um, super happy for you. And like, I I I hope you know, ten years from now, we can like look back on this episode and be like oh like look how far it's come even since then so hopefully we're we're celebrating the 20th anniversary yeah of uh of your brand but thank you for coming on man absolutely jason thank you so much for having me uh, i appreciate the pleasure of uh, being on the podcast and um yeah i i hope that everybody uh that listens um is able to you know learn and, and walk away with something well, with that this has been the creative capital show thank you for listening And as I always say at the end of every episode, I'm trying to make this a tagline, keep on creating. And that's it for this episode of The Creative Capital Show. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks goes to this episode's guest, Steve Duque. The Creative Capital Show is hosted, recorded, edited, mixed, and produced by me, Jason Sylvia. You can listen to The Creative Capital Show over at our website, creativecapitalshow.com. We're also available on Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. If you like the show, please subscribe. Helps the show out a lot. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you enjoyed the show, and until next time, keep on creating.